Welcome to Walk in the Truth Podcast. Have you ever looked back in time and considered how certain defining moments have shaped your life and future? Today, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, looks at the importance of defining moments and how we can recognize what God is saying through them. Today we continue our series that we are calling Defining Moments. Now, defining moments are moments that you have in life that are extraordinary in the sense of far bigger than normal experiences. We all have thousands of experiences, but just a few moments in life that define the way we think and the way we live in the days throughout our lives. All of us have some defining moments in our lives. Some of them are extraordinarily negative. Some of them are incredibly powerful. But the defining moments we have with God are the most important moments that we have in our life. And today I want to talk to you about a moment of assurance, a moment of security and assurance. Somebody in this room today, many somebodies in this room today need to hear what this moment of assurance is all about. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. Let's stand together as I read several verses in God's Word today, beginning in chapter 10, verse 27. You're familiar with John 10. John is about uh, the story of Jesus. Really, all of John is about Jesus' life. And John chapter 10 is Jesus depicting himself as the good shepherd and us as the sheep. So you have the shepherd sheep mentality all the way through John chapter 10. All the way through that chapter, there are all kinds of references to relationship, knowing one another. So Jesus talks about salvation and knowing one another. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. Here's what, here's what we read. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Father, today my prayer is that you will reveal to each of us in this room the security of a relationship with you. Father, that we might know what our eternal destiny really is based on our relationship with you. And Father, I pray that you'll answer questions in hearts and minds today and Help others make decisions to be in the right place with these truths. Only you can draw a person to that place of decision. But I pray you'll do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, the idea of eternal security is a pretty big deal. And understanding that you can have assurance of salvation is massive. If you're going to live life with confidence and boldness or with fear based on where you stand with that question. Over the years, I've had incredible numbers of questions that people have asked me about eternity and, and where they stand with God in the light of eternity. And some of those questions are quite revealing about their thought or their insecurities. For example, I've had questions asked like, did God really forgive me for what I did last week or last month or last year? Is that real? Is that something that God really does forgive us for? Or a question like, what if my life ends? 
uh, and I'm not living like I should at the moment. Is salvation still real for me if I'm not in the right place when I die? I've asked, we have people say, what if you don't confess your latest sin just before you die? Is that sin held against you before deciding whether you get to go to heaven? Or others ask, what if I cross some invisible line in life? A line that I'm not sure where it is, but God knows, do I lose my salvation that I at one point had if I cross that invisible line? How can I be sure I'm really and truly saved? Those kinds of questions are questions that I've been asked over the years over and over and over. And most of them are based on the understanding, the faulty understanding that salvation is anchored in to some degree how good we are. Now for some, they believe that it's anchored in how good we are since we come to Christ or since we put our faith in Christ. But for others, it's all about just being good enough to be acceptable by Jesus in heaven. I actually had one religious leader say to me one day, no one knows until they stand before Christ whether they really have eternal life or not. And believe it or not, that's a major line of thinking with many organizations, religions, and so forth today. Many people have that idea that we'll just live as good as we can in spite of our relationship with Christ, but we don't really truly know that we're secure until we look at him face to face. And my response would be, what a terrifying way to live life. Wow. But none of those things are true based on what Jesus said. And I want to talk to you today about all those important parts of security. I'm going to tell you why all those questions are answered in this text. I'm going to tell you how they're not true. But what is true is that you can have eternal security in Christ. Before I do that, I want to tell you about an experience I had more than 44 years ago. On June 10th, 1978, my wife and I were married in a small church in North Irving, Texas. That was on a Saturday night. On Sunday, uh, we got on an airplane and went to Acapulco, Mexico, where my father and mother had purchased for us a honeymoon trip. And so, uh, growing up in Oklahoma, wasn't familiar with the beach too much. I mean, Padre Island, yes, but no other beach. And uh, so I was looking forward to going to the beach, laying on the beach with my wife and just starting that married life. You know, that's one of the things dreams are made of. On Monday, we were at the beach in Acapulco and kind of late in the morning, we went down to the beach and uh, I didn't know anything about the flag system on the beaches and I didn't realize what the red flags were for on the beaches. And if you don't know what they mean, it means that you are not to swim. The undertow is too strong. But I didn't know that, and I, I didn't realize that there was nobody in the water at all. That didn't all add up to me. I thought, nobody's up yet. <laughs> and so in order to impress my new bride, I looked at the first big wave coming in, and I ran as fast as I could and dove into the middle of that wave. My form was perfect, if you ask me. <laughs> but what happened after that wasn't good. Because I went into a series of somersaults, and I was out of control. I learned later Acapulco Bay is one of the steepest bays anywhere. And I was forced under by all the weight of those waves and that water, somersaulting out of control, not knowing what was up and what was down. It was a weird moment. And I was a pretty strong swimmer, and I thought, okay, this is going to end well. Sooner or later, it's going to end well. <laughs> and, uh, but that sooner or later didn't really happen. And so there I was, once I stopped spinning, I became aware 
that I didn't know up from down. I didn't know where to swim. And I knew that in any moment, I would not be able to hold my breath any longer. And honestly, one of the first thoughts I had at that moment when awareness began to sink in was, well, this is bad timing. I mean, the first day of my married life. And it wasn't kind of a funny thought. It was a really, really sad thought. Because there's my wife back up on the beach waiting for me to surface. Surely she's waiting for me to surface at some point. And, uh, and this, is, this is not good. So that first thought was one of sadness and one of grief. But that's not the purpose of this message today because the second thought is the purpose for this message today. When you're faced with life and death, it's right there in front of your eyes. And you're even at the point where you've realized you can't do anything about living or dying. It's possible that you could die. What's your second thought? Where's your heart? Where's your mind? Do you go to panic or do you go to peace? You know, sometimes when I still tell stories from the pulpit, people say, oh, you didn't finish that story. I'm not going to finish this story till later, but you know part of that. I'm here, aren't I? I did come to the surface <laughs> at some point. But what I do want to talk to you about is that second thought. After the panic, is there peace? See, the basis for this whole question is found in this passage. John chapter 10, verse 27 and following, where Jesus is giving his disciples security. He's about to leave. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's told them he's going to rise again the third day, but they've never seen that before. He's giving them assurance and security of their future and his involvement in their lives. That's what John 10 is all about. And in that context, it speaks to us in the same way. So today, this moment of assurance is going to be uh, unfolded in three key ideas Jesus gives us in John chapter 10. The first one is this. Salvation is a personal relationship. Your passport to eternity is not a religion. It's not keeping a list of rules, but it's a personal relationship. Look at what Jesus says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Everything in John 10 is relational. As you walk through this passage, it's all about relationships. Jesus emphasizes that he is the shepherd, and they are the sheep, those who follow him, and us. In John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It reminds us that he knows who we are. But the next verse reminds us that we know who he is. It says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. So Jesus says this is going to all be about relationship. And that shouldn't have surprised the disciples. It shouldn't surprise you and I that Jesus majors on relationship when it comes to eternal security or anything having to do with security. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis and you'll find God relating to Adam and Eve on the basis of personal relationship. He created them. Then they sinned. And then the next scene is God coming into that Garden of Eden where man and woman realize they've broken God's commandment and they're naked and ashamed. And 
He comes in saying, where are you? He's looking for them. He's, he's going to have an encounter with them. He met him in the garden. Read on in the Old Testament. You'll find that God sends the prophets to speak to his people, often by name. He dispatches angels to speak to individuals about God's plan for their lives with a personal message. Then he sends Jesus the Messiah, God in the flesh, to come and establish a relationship before sealing that with his death. From the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, it's all about relationship. Read John chapter 1, and you'll see that his connection with people was personal. In fact, the very purpose of the incarnation, God becoming flesh, is so that he could relate to us on our human level. In John chapter 1, he meets Andrew and interacts with him. Then he meets Simon. Then he finds Philip. Then Nathaniel. Then Matthew, the tax collector, and on and on and on. And his commandment to them, every single one of them at the beginning was, follow me. The relationship. It wasn't a list of do's and don'ts. It wasn't a religious discourse that talked about all the things that we should avoid or all those things we should practice as a way of having eternal security. It was, follow me. That's personal, isn't it? His first miracle was at a wedding in Cana where people gather where relationships are celebrated. And Jesus interacted with people that way all the way through the gospel. He related to every person individually and by name. And he reminded people that God knew who they were, where they were, what they were going through. And as you look at the scope of relationships that Jesus demonstrated and revealed, it's really incredible that we could think that salvation is anything other than relationship. He knew us from before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. He wove us in the womb. He wove our inward parts together. He knows the number of hair on our head, the Scripture says. His eyes on the sparrow, Jesus said. So we know he watches us as well. He watches us. He convicts us. He waits for us. And when the moment is right, he reveals himself to us in a very personal way and introduces the relationship we can have with him by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's all personal. It's all relational. That's what Jesus does. And there's nothing in the teaching of Jesus or the teaching of the Bible that suggests we can earn our salvation. Nothing at all. There's nothing that says we have to be worthy of it. And there's nothing that says that religion gives us our salvation or can take it away. A source of much fear for many people. So the essence of what Scripture says is that salvation does not depend on a religion, but a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's pretty important. Even when Jesus dealt with the religious leaders of that day that were in opposition to him, he made this clear. He says in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Even to the religious leaders in opposition, he said, it's all about a relationship with me. I never knew you. Relationship trumps religion. Relationship is what Jesus looks for. Relationship is what Jesus offers. Salvation is a personal relationship. Now, the shepherd's sheep picture that we have in John chapter 10 and all through Scripture actually is pretty interesting. I was reading something about that uh, the other day. And I, I kind of did a historical research on what did people of that day view shepherds as? 
And you might find it interesting that in Israel, shepherds were generally considered unclean in the community. And they were unclean because they smelled like the sheep smelled. Because they were living out in the fields like the sheep were living out in the fields. They were in daily contact with dirty, smelly sheep, their manure, the blood from their cuts and scrapes that the shepherd had to heal, the insects that were always buzzing around them. Sheep are not the smartest of animals at all, but they knew their shepherd and they would come only to their shepherd. Now the God of the universe reveals himself through his son Jesus by that picture. I would say it's a pretty clear picture that God wants a relationship with people. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow him. They follow me. And the whole idea is they trust him. They're aware of who he is and his involvement in their life, and they trust him. How many in this room are dog people? Would you raise your hand if you're a dog person? All right. How many of your cat people would you raise your hand? Nothing I'm about to say applies to cat people, okay? You can put your hands there. <laughs> if you have a dog... You know your dog knows your voice, right? And you know the, the dog won't really listen to the voice of a stranger. Most dogs are suspicious of strangers, right? A stranger comes in and tries to take a dog away or try to invade their space. That dog's going to bark. It's going to retaliate in some way. But they know you. And when you walk in the room and you call their name, their ears go down instead of up. They relax. Their tail starts wagging. And they come your way, lick your hand. I mean, we're not worthy of dogs. They love us in spite of all we've done or not done. Well, you put that analogy into the picture Jesus gives of sheep and shepherds, then you understand something about the familiarity and the security that Jesus says the sheep have in his presence because they trust him, because they have that personal relationship, because he guides them to the water they need, to the, to the food they need. Jesus says, this is what I am to those who follow me. I'm in a personal relationship with them. And in John 10, Jesus says that I am the door to life for the sheep. I am the protector who lays down his life. The good shepherd is the one who intimately knows the sheep in every way and gives them life. In fact, later on in the book of John, in chapter 17, verse 3, in what we call the high priestly prayer, Jesus Christ says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's as clear as a picture in one verse of eternal life as you can get. It's knowing and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, when we talk about security and assurance, the most important question I can ask you is this one. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? When I preach about security, there's always a concern that someone might get a false sense of security. But don't you know who you know? Sometimes people come up to me and say, hey, do you know such and such a person? And if I can't recall who they are, I do what you do. I get on Facebook and type their name in there to see maybe if it's there. <laughs> and if they look familiar, oh yeah, I know them. But if I really know someone, and they come to me and they give me their name, do you know such and such? Immediately I go, oh yeah, I know them. And the reason I say I know them is because I have some experience with them. I've had interactions or conversations with them. I've got history to some degree with those individuals. You know who you know. And the security of your relationship 
is the security of your salvation. Do you know Jesus? Have you met him? That's an incredibly important thing. So Jesus begins with the security kind of teaching with personal relationship. Salvation is a personal relationship. Do you know Jesus? But there's a second principle that comes out of this, and that is that salvation is a permanent gift. You notice what he says in verse 28 in the first part? He said, and I give eternal life to them. Now, John is the disciple who describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I've always thought that was funny because we know Jesus loved all the disciples, right? And we know that he loves us. But John felt pretty special. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And whenever he wrote, he would write based on that relationship that he had with the Lord. And so he talks a lot about this eternal life that's given to him by Jesus. In fact, he quotes Jesus in John 3.16 as he writes uh, the book of John, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting or eternal life. So he emphasizes that. Later on in John chapter 5, we read this, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. John later on wrote in 1 John, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And then in verse 13 of that same chapter, another great memorable verse, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know be assured of, have security in the fact that you have eternal life. And it's not just exclusive to John and the Gospels. You find this written by the Apostle Paul in the Epistles. Book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. This is not something that we come up with on our own through religion. This is a gift that God gives us, and it is not achieved but received. That, that's a line I like to use a lot. Salvation is not achieved but received. It's a personal relationship, and it's not achieved but it's received. That means you can't earn this thing. It means that you can't acquire a certain status or level where God finally says, all right, you've got it. You've got the key to heaven. You're, you're going to go in someday because you've reached this level of obedience or maturity or whatever else it is. But salvation never has been, never will be achieved. It's always a gift received. And it's permanent, eternal life. I wish everything was eternal, at least things I like. I wish they were eternal. How many of you would like to purchase everything you purchased with a lifetime guarantee? Would you raise your hand? Of course we would. I mean, I would immediately purchase a car if someone could give me the promise it would never break down. I would love a refrigerator that never quits, even in the hot of summer. I would really like air conditioners that don't stop and electricity that never gets cut off. But nobody on this planet can give you a lifetime guarantee for any of those products, right? As much as we want them, nobody can guarantee that. And the reason they can't guarantee that is because they're not big enough to guarantee that because they're not God. But God guarantees what he gives us. 
I give eternal life to them. Eternal. That's not just a lifetime guarantee. That is a timeless guarantee. It is an eternity guarantee. I give eternal life to them. It's really quite amazing. I love how he uses this term all the way through the Bible to talk about salvation. It's a gift. It's not something that's earned. And that gift is eternal. How do we miss the point of permanence? This thing is permanent. So let me show you what the word eternal means. Eternal is a word that means perpetual, constant, forever. It means everlasting. It pertains to a future time. It is endless duration of the highest quality. The word life there is the essence of life is what it means. It is an eternal promise. As a pastor, I've always struggled to define eternity. It's hard to define eternity when my mind is finite, right? It's not infinite. And your mind is not infinite either. It's finite. We, we, we know blocks of time. We know periods of time. And so it's hard to define eternity. I heard of one preacher who was asked to define eternity, and his response was, I can do it, but it'll take forever for it to come across. <laughs> but today I want to try to define eternity. I'm going to pick up something on the floor here. And I'm going to stretch it across the stage because I want you to see this rope that I have as an illustration of the timeline of life. And as I stretch this rope across the stage, I want you to realize that you can't really see where this rope starts and you won't be able to see where it ends. And that, in a sense, will help us understand something about eternity. And while I stretch it to the end of the stage, I'm going to give it to a friend here who makes sure we can hold it up. Now, you may think that this piece of the roof right here is all messed up. But it's not messed up. It just describes your life right here on this timeline. It's kind of gnarly, isn't it? That of going forward and going backwards. But I want you to envision for just a moment that this is the timeline of your life on this planet. And I want you to think about eternity past. And I want you to realize that the Scripture tells us that the God who brings Jesus to us and salvation to us has known us from before the foundation of the world. That would be eternity past. And if this is forward, then his life stretches into eternity future. And really all we know is this right here, this little piece of time right here where we first become aware that we have life of some kind. And yet we get this promise from God that he promises us eternal life. Now, I know we're worried about this life right here. We spend all of our time focusing on this life right here, this little piece of the timeline from the time we were born to the time that we die, and everything we think about has to do with this right here. But God has in mind for us everything for all time and all eternity. Now, when Jesus uses the word, I give them eternal life, he's not talking about this right here. He's talking about all of that, the moment you come to faith in Christ. And he tells you how to be prepared for that and how to live here in order to maximize all that. But most of the time, we just think of it right here. 
God has such a bigger plan for your life and my life than we envision and imagine. That's what eternity can look like. How can you become insecure about something that's a gift and that's eternal? And here's the answer to that. You see it as something other than a gift. But how could you earn all that through all time and all eternity? How could you po be possibly good enough, perfect enough? How could you possibly please God enough to get all that? The answer is you could not. Not in a million tries. But God gives us eternal life. And that's where our hope is. And when you accept Jesus Christ, you accept the gift of eternal life from here into eternity. And it comes with the gift. All your eternity comes with the moment of accepting him as Lord and Savior. Now, I want you to know something about this whole, this whole teaching that Jesus gives in John chapter 10. None of the emphasis is on you. All of the emphasis is on him and his ability and his promise and his keeping the promise. It's all on him. And it speaks about the greatness of God and the power of God. And it's never been about man. It's never been about me. It's never been about you. It's always about his goodness, always about his faithfulness, always about his graciousness and his favor placed on unworthy people. And so the biggest question I can ask you is not only do you know Jesus, but have you accepted him and his gift? Have you trusted him for eternal life? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He talks also about a powerful assurance. The last part of verse 28 says, And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So here's Jesus, no less of an authority than Jesus, says these words to us about assurance and security using terms that are crystal clear. Crystal clear. I want you to remember what I say to you today. I want you to highlight these verses in your Bible. I want you to circle the words that I, I talk about today because they're so incredibly important. For instance, this passage here says this. My Father has already given them to me. In other words, in eternity past, God has already shown Jesus how all this is going to work out. Now, don't ask me to explain this today or in next week's message. I can tell you that it's infinite in, in its theology and its wisdom. God alone knows. But it also says that no one is greater than the Father. And no one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand. And no one can snatch these sheep out of the Father's hands. Now, in the Greek language, there are two different kinds of words for no. One of them is what we would call a relative no. The other is an absolute no. And the absolutes are rampant in this text. All of these no's are absolute no's. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that absolutely no one is able to snatch them out of Jesus' hand. Absolutely no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And we have this word picture here that I want you to remember. Eternal life is paralleled with being in his hands. There's nothing insecure about this salvation. There's nothing iffy about this promise. In fact, it's a double-gripped illustration. Let me use the biblical imagery for just a moment to put a word picture in your mind. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, according to Jesus, no one can snatch you out of his hand. Is that what it says? 
That's what it says. You can say amen there. That's what it says. If no one can snatch you out of his hand, that means you are where? In his hands. All right? Follow me through this, through the end of this, with your logic and with these words. Then the Bible says no one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hands. But I don't think we have a handoff going on here. So let's take this other hand and let's place it over you who are in the hands of Jesus. So you're in the hands of Jesus. No one can snatch you out of his hand. The Father also holds you. There's no one that can snatch you out of the Father's hand. If you keep reading in the Bible, you'll find about the power of the Holy Spirit that sets its seal on this relationship. So you're gripped by Jesus, covered by the Father, sealed by the Holy Spirit. I believe it. You cannot be snatched out of these hands. Amen? That's what it says. Now, if this is just me promising you that, it's not good enough. I can't keep that promise. But if it's Jesus Christ, God the Son, promising you this, you can count on it. In fact, you better count on it. Your security is based on what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. And again, all of the emphasis here is on the power and the sovereignty of God. It doesn't say a word about what you're doing while you're in his hands. It doesn't say that you're going to be perfect while you're in his hands. It just says that you trust him when you're in his hands. Today, I want you to get the picture that God has this thing figured out. And that you have to be at the place of trusting him for you to be able to understand it. Now, in my interactions with people, some who doubt the idea of eternal security often feel like it's Christ who will cut them off. And yet Jesus says here, that will not happen. And there are some who doubt eternal security that believe that while no one else and nothing else can remove them or threaten their salvation, they themselves can remove it if they were to go back on their faith. Again, this text removes that possibility. Can someone still stumble? Can someone doubt? Yes, they can. Is this salvation big enough to hold them up even in that doubt? Yes, it is. Romans, the book of Romans is the book of theology and Paul writes about this same subject in these words. He says, Romans 8, verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us, who is us, that is those who believe in Jesus Christ, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there we are in his hands, and the promise pertains to us. Salvation is not to be determined. You don't have to wait to find out if you get there uh, by looking at the face of Jesus after your death, but it's already reserved already secured. That's what the passage says. Placing faith in Jesus means removing faith from yourself and from your religion or your ability to keep his commandments or your decision to stick with him or your practice of religion to keep you safe. You trust him. Period. Full stop. That's the salvation of the Bible. When my uh, kids were younger, um, we lived in a town in Oklahoma, uh, and we had a new Burger King move into town, and they had this phenomenal playground. Always a great playground. By the way, it doesn't matter what the burger tastes like. If you've got three young kids, the playground is why you go. 
And it had a slide with an eight-foot ladder. This eight-foot ladder was pretty high. But they loved it because when they were six and four and about three, they would jump off that ladder into my hands, and it was a, it was a lot of fun. And my oldest daughter was kind of a risk taker, and she loved jumping off that ladder, and I'd catch her. My next oldest kid was a, was a boy. His name was Caleb. And Caleb was not quite as adventurous, uh, adventuresome as Carrie was, but when he got to the top of the ladder the first time, it took him a long time to trust before he could jump off the ladder into my hands. But he had seen how I caught Carrie, so he thought, okay, he's going to be able to get caught. He won't get dropped. And I decided to play a trick on him because it took so long for him to trust me. When he finally leaped, I turned away and said, never mind. Then I turned back around back quickly and caught him. At that point, my wife said, that better never happen again. I don't think it scarred him permanently. <laughs> but I was playing a trick on him. It took him so long, I finally looked away, then turned around and caught him. Let me tell you what will never happen in eternity. The Heavenly Father will never do that to you. Amen. He will never do that to you. You can trust him. You can be confident in him. You can leap the leap of faith, and he will be there to catch you. And he will have you in his hands. It's so important. You know, trusting Jesus and trusting the Father is just like that. And when you do trust him, you love him. You follow him. You serve him. And you want to become like him because you trust him. So the question is, do you trust him? Now, let me finish my story I started with a few moments ago. It would be bad to not come back to that story. The first thought I had when I thought I would die was sadness and grief. The panic was over, nothing I could do about it. Didn't know whether I would go up or down. Didn't know where, what up and down was at the moment. I just knew I could only hold on to my breath just a little while longer. And then in the middle of that moment, while I was holding my breath, but realizing it wasn't going to be long, an incredible sense of peace came and washed away the sadness and grief. In fact, I remember thinking while I was in that water, I'm not supposed to feel this way if I'm about to die. It was just amazing. It was just a calming, peaceful thought. And I knew I was about to lose my life, my wife, my future, everything, but that peace told me I'm not going to lose my salvation here. Amen. And here are the words that came to my mind. Long before I studied John 28 and 29, long before I knew what these words meant, the thought I had in that calming moment was, live or die, I am in his hands. Live or die, I am in his hands. Imagine my surprise when later on I studied the scripture and found out that's incredibly true. Live or die, we're in his hands. I was in his hands then. I'm in his hands now. I, I was in his hands when things are bad. I'm in his hands when things are good. I'm in his hands on planet earth and I'm in his hands for all time and all eternity because he gives eternal life to me, and I shall never perish, and no one shall snatch me out of his hands. And my heavenly Father, who is greater than all, 
has given them to Jesus and no one is able to snatch me out of my Father's hands. That's what this text tells you today. That's what Jesus says to you today. And that, to me, is what security is. Do you know Jesus? Have you accepted him? Do you trust him for that? Do you trust him? In just a few moments, I'm going to close in prayer, and I want to invite you to make a decision to trust Jesus, to know him, to have confidence in him, to trust him, to put your faith and belief in him. We have decision stations that are at the back of the room that are available and manned every Sunday. And I can't imagine you wanting to walk out of this building today without eternal security as being something that you really have. I can't imagine you wandering and not stopping. And my encouragement to you is to stop and ask. But more than that, trust him, receive him. And with him, the entire gift of eternal life. Would you stand with me? Father, today as we consider this whole timeline of eternity, and as we consider the understanding of assurance and security, my prayer today is that those in this room will come to the place of knowing beyond doubt that they have salvation and that it's eternal, that it's real. And Father, for those who doubt today, I ask that you cause them to want to stop and to want to talk about this and to want to make decisions that will lead them to put their faith and trust in you. Lord, no one can guarantee us tomorrow or next week or next month, but you guarantee us eternal life in you. And Father, my prayer today is that we will come to the place, every one of us individually, of putting our faith in you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.